We have been in this uh, terrific sermon series all the month of August about spiritual catalysts. We call them spiritual dominoes, things that happen, and as they keep happening in our lives, they grow our faith. And so it is that Steve launched the series the first week of August uh, with the concept of providential relationships. And a key idea out of that, uh, that sermon and that concept is, show me your friends and I'll show you your future providential relationships that move us toward Christ or not. Uh, personal ministry, Brian Contella gave a tremendous uh, message on that and said to us, you know, you are more influential than you think. And you have more power than you think. And so we all can have personal ministry and it's a spiritual domino, a spiritual catalyst in our lives. And Last weekend, Stephanie Husk spoke uh, powerfully on the subject of pivotal circumstances, spoke out of the life of Hannah and, and talked to us about how, how do we frame the circumstances of our lives? Do we see God in them or how, do we not see God? How do we interpret those circumstances? And we watched Hannah interpret the circumstances that God was in the hard times and he was in the good times. And then this morning, my assignment is to talk to us about private practices, the, the things that you and I do intentionally on our own, maybe choices we make or things that we do that move us to a deeper walk with Christ. And normally, week to week this month, we have children's stories and children's books. Um, and this morning, since we have the children up here in the choir, and uh, I've chosen to not do a children's book, but instead, I want to tell you a true story about a baby girl and her big brother, four years old. They live in a country far, far away on the other side of the world, literally called Nepal, south of Tibet and China north of India. And they were 19 years ago in a village way up in the Himalayan mountains, about the 9,000 foot level. And in their village, there was a lot of people not having enough food. And when you don't have enough food, you're vulnerable to illness. And in that village, a flu epidemic swept through the place and 120 people died. We go back to this little boy and this little girl, and their mama and daddy died in a flu epidemic. Well, simultaneously in that village, um, my son and his wife, Matt and Rachel, were serving the Lord on a one-year assignment as missionaries there. And they had been burdened about the plight of the children, especially the little girls. And they uh, wondered, God, we haven't tried to have children yet, but do you want us to adopt a baby girl while we're here? Well, this flu epidemic hits, children are orphaned, and the missionaries send word out to the villagers, uh, bring us your babies if you don't have a way to feed them. If their moms die and there's no way to nurse them, we'll feed them. And I have a picture of two little girls who brought in their baby cousin, uh, to the missionaries in a place called Joomla up in northwest Nepal, this little village. And her name is Pavitra, and she was uh, 13 months old and weighed 9 pounds. Her hair was orange because of malnutrition, and we've got that close up, and you can see um, those kind of sad little eyes. Her tongue was stuck to the roof of her mouth because she was so dehydrated. And my son, Matt, and wife, Rachel knew from God this was to be their baby. 
And over the next weeks, they worked with the villagers and they uh, talked to the family and they said, could we adopt this baby because there's nobody in your village able to feed her and she's going to die if someone doesn't. We would love to adopt her. And on that journey of talking with the family, they realized there's a four-year-old brother. And so they say, can we adopt her brother as well? And the village elders and the family decide you can adopt the baby girl, but you cannot adopt her brother because he'll inherit the rice paddy and he'll carry on the family name. And so we have a picture of Pavitra now a couple months after being fed well, and it's amazing what food does for a child, and her big brother Netra, which is one of the last times they would see each other because a short time later, Matt and Rachel left that village, ending their year assignment, and brought baby Pavitra home to the United States. You can imagine that was a sad thing to walk away from that relationship. The children don't know the implications, but the adults obviously do. Well, over a period of time, We lost track as a family of what happened to Netra, the little four-year-old. You see, the missionaries had to evacuate that region and then, frankly, much of Nepal later because of a Maoist, a communist insurgency that came in from Tibet and China. And many adults in many of these especially remote villages were killed and children as young as five years old were conscripted to be in the army with the Maoists. So the missionaries evacuated. As they evacuated, there was no news to be had. And we as a family have never known what happened to Netra. Roll forward, and Pavitra is living in the United States. She's my first grandchild, and I adore her, and her family adores her. And Matt and Rachel have two sons, Christian and Scout, and they're a family of three. And life goes on, and despite her very fragile beginning, Pavitra grows up to be a healthy young woman. And here's a picture of her at her high school graduation. And I share that particular picture with you because it was an incredibly momentous week, not only because she graduated from high school and is healthy and thriving, but also because her birth brother in Nepal contacted her on Facebook. And so for the first time a year ago, we knew that her brother was alive, that he lived in Kathmandu, And we learned that he had been taken from the village when he was just a few months after they left with Pavitra, was deposited at an orphanage in Kathmandu and never saw family again from age four till age 16. Well, we have decided many years ago that when the time was right, we were going to take Pavitra back to Nepal. Uh, when she would be old enough to experience it and see where she was born and when her younger brothers would be old enough to benefit from the experience as well. And so it is that on July 3rd, this summer, just uh, weeks ago, I met Matt, Rachel, and the kids at the Portland airport, and there we are ready to take off for Nepal and spent three weeks this July in Nepal, all of it with Netra making the trip infinitely more meaningful than it would have been had we not known about Netra. And here's a picture of when we arrive at the airport in Kathmandu and the brother and sister 
for the first time since they were one year old and four years old, uh, see each other, and then another picture of the two of them. What an experience. What an experience. And over those three weeks, we flew together in this small airplane up to the village where they were born. We took Netra along, and we met between 60 and 70 relatives up in this remote region where the people are still uh, certainly lead far from a privileged life. Um, No cars. We saw two motorbikes. If you want to go somewhere, you walk. And we walked from village to village, meeting relative after relative after relative. And then we flew out, and that's a picture of us after we landed, returning back uh, or coming back from the village um, Thrilled for the phenomenal experience that we'd had up there, um, meeting family, being with Netra in that environment. Thankful we were safe since two flights a year crash on that particular route. Uh, So we were happy at that airport. (laughs) But we had, over that time and then the next weeks we were together with Netra in Kathmandu, Um, developed a really rich and meaningful relationship with this outstanding 22-year-old young man who, against every odd, um, has done very well and is studying in university right now to be an engineer. And the time came close to our departure date. And it was kind of interesting just in my own heart and to watch the rest of the family that for the last two days we were working to smile because we didn't want to leave him. He had become a part of us, and we had become a part of him. A meaningful relationship started, and we're keenly aware that unless we are intentional in continuing that relationship, over time, it will begin to just fade away, and we'll say, wow, that was a phenomenal life-altering experience in Nepal the month of July. And we'll go on with our lives, and there'll be no more if we're not intentional. Because, you see, wanting and wishing for a relationship never makes it so. Relationships, whether in families or with friends, grow and develop because we are intentional to do that, to spend time together, to have experiences together. And it is exactly the same in our relationship with God. If we are not intentional in developing that relationship, it will never be as meaningful as it could be. This morning, I want to talk to us out of the life of a teenager by the name of Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish boy who was a part, frankly, of a noble family in uh, the city of Jerusalem. And he had a great life going until the year 605 or 607, rather, B.C. And at that point, the Babylonian Empire had Uh, captured and taken over, overcome the the Assyrian Empire. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he is determined to take more and more and more land. If you think of modern-day Iraq, Iran, Syria, the whole Middle East, and that's the Babylonian Empire. But not content with that, he brings his armies down to the small remaining southern kingdom of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And he marches into the city of Jerusalem, and he doesn't take over the entire city, doesn't destroy it, yet he would do that 20 years later. But at this point, he captures the king. 
And he takes a king and the royal family and other nobility, as it says in the scriptures, and the key artisans and the wonderful craftsmen, and he takes them all and they hike, march 700 plus miles up to Babylonia, the capital city of Babylon. And so for this young teenager, Daniel, who was apparently among the noble families, the good life is over. And he is now at the mercy of a pagan king. And the question that comes to us in this incredibly pivotal circumstance in his life is, will he continue to walk with God or will he go the way of a pagan nation? Daniel chapter 1, if you want to grab a pew Bible, it's on page 1381. I'm just going to read to you a few verses out of Daniel 1, starting at verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, King Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families as well, who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment, that they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Well, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were chosen to be a part of this training. But for all intents and purposes, and the way that we might look at it today is, they made a very poor career move. Because this is a great career opportunity. If you're a captive in a pagan land, a foreign land, here's a great opportunity to make it into the king's court and have good position and a better life. But they said, we will not, we will not eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. And they take a stand. And I read that and I have pondered and thought and prayed, what, why did they take that stand? Well, they took that stand because apparently as young men, as children and young teenagers, I'm guessing that they sat at the feet of teachers and prophets and preachers at the temple in Jerusalem. And as they sought at their feet, they were taught the scriptures of the Old Testament and the law of the Old Testament and the ways of God. And probably like good Jewish boys, Orthodox Jewish boys do today, they probably memorized a lot of that scripture because certainly in their era, there were no books 2,000 years before the printing press. They certainly didn't have a Bible to read. So they must have sat under the teaching of these teachers and these prophets and these preachers. And as they sat under that teaching, they would have learned the first, the Ten Commandments. Certainly the first one, as my old King James Version when I memorized it, thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Don't worship any other gods. And the second one is like unto it, and it says, do not make for yourself any graven image, any idol. Have nothing to do with idols. I am God and God alone. And the prophets and the preachers would have taught them also the fact that you should never, ever, ever, ever eat food that has been defiled by pagans at pagan altars, offered to idols. Well, transfer over to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would know that King Nebuchadnezzar 
routinely would have offered the first portion of his food, the first portion of his wine, to pagan altars, to idols. They would have known that. They would have known what God said about idols. And so they took a stand. And I say, why did they take a stand? Not only did they know the word of God, not only were they committed to following God, but they had each other. They had godly friends to walk this journey with them. And so as Steve said, in in these providential friendships or relationships, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And it would appear very strongly that these young men encouraged one another in the Lord. And though they did not eat the king's food nor drink the king's wine, they thrived and were ultimately blessed by God and chosen to be among the influential positions within King Nebuchadnezzar's court. All is going well. These Jewish boys in a pagan land keep on living their life, and then some years later, we're not told in Scripture exactly how many, another problem arises for them. It's recorded for us in chapter 3 of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar decides that he wants to have built a tall statue, all solid gold, or at least gold on the whole outside of it. It's 90 feet tall, and it's an idol. And they decide, uh, the king and his leaders, fellow leaders decide, we're going to make all the people bow down to this idol. Whenever they hear this certain music playing, everybody stops, bows down in the city of Babylonia before this idol. The stakes for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suddenly grow because the edict says that if you don't bow down to this idol, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace and you will be burned up and died. Now, if you understand their world, um, you might understand it better by, by knowing this. If you read ancient historians, they tell us that Babylonia, this walled city, this capital city of Babylon, was filled with over 50 pagan temples, filled with pagan idols. In fact, the largest one in the entire city was known, uh, Herodotus, this ancient historian says, was literally 30 stories high, 300 feet high, dominated the city skyline. So everybody in their world bowed down to idols. They were surrounded by this morning, noon, and night. And it strikes me it's very much the same for Netra over in Nepal. While we were there, we went to multiple Buddhist temples and Hindu shrines. And we have some photos of what you see in those, and this is just a fragment of what you see Uh, offerings put in front of all manner of idols, uh, goddesses, and go on. The next one, you see even monkey idols, and they offer offerings to monkey idols, and you go on and you see all manner of, um, frankly, some quite scary-looking idols. It's a city of idols. It's a city, uh, Kathmandu, where you can go down the street and you'll see a small shrine. You go a little further and you see maybe a house-sized shrine or temple. You go a little further and there's a huge temple. 
And in them are prayer wheels where people spin prayers, but not to God. They just spin prayers hoping it'll change their lives. Fly flags hoping as they blow in the wind it'll change their lives. And it's a culture there in Kathmandu of Buddhism and Hinduism that is mixed together. And as you drive around Kathmandu or walk around Kathmandu, we saw, I saw one church. And if I hadn't seen the sign, I certainly wouldn't have known by its design that it was a church. We went online and found an international church that we could attend on a, on a Sunday morning. And we had our two taxis, because they're all small taxis. We always had to take two everywhere we went driving through the insane traffic of Kathmandu. And even these taxi drivers couldn't find this church. Took us a long time to find the church because it was on a remote street and it was behind other buildings and there was no signage out in front. And while we were there, we talked to Netra about Jesus and he was really eager to hear. And when he heard, uh, when I told him one day, you know, Netra, I actually work at a church. And he said, you what? And I said, I work at a church. And he said, um, are you a priest? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. And I teach people about Jesus. And he said, so are you part God? Because I said, no, that's, that's what you think about your Hindu holy men. But it was a little too early to get into the theology of the Holy Spirit indwelling. <laughs> but um, so I didn't do that. But he said, you have to teach me how to pray to Jesus. And we had taken a Nepali Bible and we gave it to him and he was thrilled. First Bible he's ever had. No idea. Old Testament, New Testament, knows nothing. We were able to miraculously to connect him to some missionaries who are going to stay in relationship with him. But the reality is that whether you're Netra in Kathmandu or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon, you are surrounded by everything but that. You are surrounded by paganism and a way of life that goes that direction. And it doesn't matter if you're in high school and all your friends are not Christians, or you're in college and your friends aren't Christians, or your workplace, you're the only one. It is not easy to stand against the tide. And so we ask ourselves, what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Did they stand against the tide? We read in chapter 3 of Daniel, verse 17, they said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And they trusted God with their lives, thrown into the fiery furnace, and God rescued them from that. And I read that and I think, why did they have that courage, surrounded by all this paganism? Well, they must have stuck together. They must have quoted their memorized scripture to one another. They must have continued to encourage one another in the Lord. And what they had learned as children stuck in their lives and in their walk with the living God. In June, um, I sent out a, a small email survey to about 23 people, most of whom attend our church, some who don't. They were in different decades of life. And I asked them two questions. One was, what spiritual practice are you doing in your life right now that's blessing you? And the second question, as you look over your journey in walking with Christ, 
what spiritual practice over that time has been most um, influential in your life. And literally 21 out of 23 answered my Bible. Because it's through my Bible that I know God. And it's through my Bible he know, I, I can walk in relationship with him. And so I, I've got some of their statements that they wrote back to me because I chose their heart to make the Bible a key in their lives. It's my goal, usually reached, to start each day with my French press coffee, a piece of toast with peanut butter, and my Bible. I intentionally start my day with quiet devotional time and a large cup of coffee. <laughs> it's a good theme. <clears throat> I continue to be amazed at how many devotionals and scriptures were written just for me. Over the years, the practice of memorizing scripture has been most impactful for me. And another writes, next slide, reading through the Bible each year with a one-year Bible has been one of my favorite practices over the years. I get something new out of every passage every year. And one more, listening for God's word to me in scripture as I read. Hearing God's voice that way is transformational and it builds me up. There are a lot of spiritual practices, but central to these people, and I believe central to God's heart, is what he says in his word. Uh, Thirteen years ago, <clears throat> my husband died suddenly. The first night after his death, I tossed and turned in my bed. I'd never slept in alone before and didn't sleep at all the whole night. And morning came, and I climbed out of bed, and the family that had already arrived were still in bedrooms, and I just grabbed my Bible and sat down on the floor in my bedroom and because it's been my lifelong habit to read scripture every day with, obviously I miss some days, but not very many. I just opened my Bible to where I happened to be reading at that point. I was reading through the book of Psalms in the middle of the Bible. And my Psalm reading for that day was Psalm 146. And this is what I'm talking about when I say God speaks to us through his word. And that's what the other person meant at the last quote up there on the screen. 146, verse 5. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord cares for the orphans and the widows. He will be your God. And I read that that morning, and while it was a long journey ahead and an agonizing journey, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that my God was with me. The first day of my life and I'm a widow, he says, I take care of the widows. The first day of my children's lives that they're at least half orphans, he says, I take care of the orphans. And 13 years later, I can say that has been astonishingly true. The first practice that sustains and builds our relationship with God is the word of God. But it's not the only one. As we go on in the life of Daniel, we find that another key practice in his life was prayer. 
Um, He was a man that prayed literally three times a day. And we find this in Daniel chapter 6. And and life has changed for Daniel. He is no longer a young man. He's probably 80-something years old. He's an old man. Um, And he is still working for the king, but it's no longer King Nebuchadnezzar because Babylon has been overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. And so it's King Darius who is now the king. But Daniel is still way up in the king's court. And he's one of the key administrators. And we find as we read the Daniel chapter 6 that those other administrators were quite jealous because Daniel had high influence and was very successful in his role. Which takes us back to uh, the sermon that Brian said that um, you're more influential than you think. Uh, That's incredibly true in personal ministry. He was in a secular job in a secular country, but he was influential for God. And so these jealous administrators decide, okay, we've got to come up with a scheme. And they know that he prays three times a day. And so they go to King Darius and say, King Darius, here's a good idea. Let's have everybody in the country be required to bow down to you and pray only to you, not to anything human, not to anything divine, but only to you for 30 days. And if they don't, we'll throw them in the lion's den. Whoa. Wow. So what is Daniel going to do? Is he going to keep praying three times a day? Let's read what happens in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. And then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. And when they found him praying, they run immediately back to King Darius and said, Daniel is not praying to you, he's praying to his God. And in the end, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and then rescued by God's angels. If you haven't read Daniel chapters 1 through 6 in a while or ever, I just tell you, it's great reading. You'd be blessed if you did it. It's amazing. But prayer was a lifelong private practice for Daniel. And in our little mini survey that I did, 12 out of 23 people said the second most important thing they do in their spiritual practices is prayer. We look at the life of Christ and we see the two central practices in his life. One is the word of God because he's forever quoting the Old Testament when he teaches. And the other is prayer as we see him go off and pray alone with his father and teach his disciples how to pray. And prayer was central to his life. Scriptures were central to his life. Those are core. But there are lots of other wonderful spiritual practices that can build our faith, and increase our meaningful relationship with Christ. And so we've put them on the screen, and you can uh, see, read some of what came from all of these surveys that I did. And you don't, if you're a note taker, don't start trying to write all those down because they've got a handout as you leave, so you can save yourself that. Private practices. The second and third most, uh, or, or the other two, I should say, third and fourth, I guess, most popular, if you will, with those in the survey were 
uh, coming to church. And I thought, first I thought, well, that's not private. Then I thought, no, it's a private decision to come to church because we can all decide on any given week. I just don't feel like it. Um, so it's a private decision. And coming to church has made a huge difference for those people. And the other one was journaling, writing down what you hear God saying or what you're learning about him or your own life. But you can, I can all list all those private practices and we say, that's fantastic, but it's hard to do them if we're honest with ourselves. And I guarantee you that there's an enemy of our souls who is going to try to stop us at every point from having private time with the living God. He's going to, in the morning, say, well, you ought to sleep a little longer. You're tired. In the morning, you're going to get up and you're going to think, oh, man, I, I'm too busy today to take time to be with God. And we'd believe that lie because we are busy people. He's going to do everything he can to stop us. And so it is that intentionality is totally required. Whether we're seven years old or 70 years old, it doesn't matter. If we're not intentional, we will move away from private practices. And if we're honest again, we can say all of us have had seasons, and maybe it's a week long, maybe it's two weeks long, maybe it's three months long, maybe it's two years long, where we didn't incorporate any private practices into our lives. And we kind of just went on gliding through our Christian faith and Christian walk. And if we really said what we know, we would have to say, I didn't sense God's presence as much. I didn't have as much confidence in decisions I made because I wasn't really talking to God very much. Private practices, they're so essential for our journey with the living God. And I can't talk to you about private practices without talking to you about what I do in my private practices. Um, one of them is a Bible study. Uh, Forty years ago, I joined my first Bible study shortly after becoming a born a born-again believer, and I've been in a Bible study every year since, 40 years. I would never miss. Because not only do I need the accountability, but I thrive on the fellowship, the, the providential friendships that God gives me in that environment, the way we pray for each other, the way we encourage each other in the Lord and study the Word of God together. So I'm always in a Bible study every year. I love music, Christian music, so I just love these kids today. But I, in the morning, I'll get up, and most mornings, I'll turn on Christian music as I'm fixing breakfast, packing a lunch to bring over to church for the day. I'm reading through the Bible in a one-year Bible this year. It's a chronological Bible, and I have loved reading it. It just goes through the Bible chronologically so that if something is happening to the nation Israel, you jump to the prophet that was preaching to them right then and know what he was trying to say to them. Or Anyway, it's a fantastic Bible. And I don't usually read through the Bible in a year. I don't want you to think I'm that spiritual because I'm not. Um, that's a lot of reading. But I've loved it this year. I pray a lot. But I don't have prayer lists. I've never done that. I just pray, God, what do you want me to, who do you want me to pray for? Remind me. When I'm reading my Bible, I pray a lot when I'm reading my Bible. My Bible is like a journal with notes all the way through it of people I'm praying for, family members, children, grandchildren, friends. And then at night before I turn out the light, I have this little, what I call, gratitude journal. It's just this big because I needed small pages. 
And I'm going to have to get a new one because I'm almost out of pages. But I started doing this in January to every night before I go to sleep, take five minutes to write down five blessings in the day. And some nights I don't want to do it. I'm tired. I'd love to turn out the light. But the reality is when I start doing it, I end up with nine that day, or seven that day, or ten that day, or some days in Nepal, 21 blessings of the day. And you know what that does for me is this. I'm a, I'm a productive person by nature, and I always am thinking ahead to what's the next thing that needs to be done. So normally, historically, when I go to bed at night, I'm already playing tomorrow in my head making lists in my head, thinking through problems and issues that need to be solved or mountains that need to be climbed or whatever it is. And this reframes my day into where did I see God in my life today? It may have been in lunch with a wonderful friend. It may have been bumping into somebody at the grocery store. It may have been a new recipe. It may have been a phone call from a child. It may have been taking a grandchild to a park. It may have been something very small. But in the looking through the day, I see the blessings of God and the presence of God, and I go to bed with a thankful heart instead of a strategizing brain. So those are my private practices But I want to close by showing you one more picture of Pavitra and Netra, sister and brother, 19 and 22 years old. We desperately want to maintain a meaningful relationship with him. And so we're being intentional. We email him. We Skype him. We call him. Pavitra Facebooks with him regularly. And sometime in the next year, we are going to bring him to the United States for a visit. We don't know what the future is for Natra. We don't know if it's the United States. We don't know if it's Nepal. We have no idea. But we know that we want a meaningful relationship, and we'll never have that unless we're intentional. And so it is with our God. Unless we're intentional, we will never have as meaningful a relationship with the living God as he wants to give us. So, Father, we cry out to you and tell you that we are frail human beings, and it is our tendency to go on with life and move away from you and get busy with busyness and projects and lists and jobs and schoolwork and everything else. And so we ask, O Spirit of the living God, that you would fall afresh on us and that you would make our hearts hunger and thirst to walk with you in deep and meaningful ways, And give us the self-discipline that we don't have on our own. Uh, That would help us become regular Bible readers, prayers, journalers, music listeners, solitude people. Whatever the spiritual practice is that you want for us in this season of our lives, help us to do it. For we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.